I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to Season 2 of More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story. Tell me a story, tell me true, I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue, tell me a story and I I'll tell mine to you. Welcome to season two, episode number 15 of More to the Story. It's the last episode of the season of the show that is all about something near and dear to my heart. As you know, telling true stories and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gumtree, which is dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the writers and artists we publish. Digital subscriptions are $2 a month and print subscriptions are $7 a month. All that info is online at underthegumtree.com. On today's episode of More to the Story, I'm joined by Rebecca Tossig, one of Under the Gumtree's previous contributors. Rebecca is a writer and a teacher with her PhD in creative nonfiction and disability studies from the University of Kansas. She is interested in the powerful connection between the stories we tell and the tangible world we live in. You can find her essays in Under the Gumtree, of course, and the Florida Review. You can also follow her flash memoirs on Instagram at sitting underscore pretty. Her essay, Reupholstered, appears in the October 2016 issue of Under the Gumtree. And I want to mention quickly right here that I apologize for a little bit of less than ideal audio in this episode. There's some buzzing that comes in and out intermittently on Rebecca's side of the interview that I didn't realize until we had finished, unfortunately. It comes in and it ends quickly, so please bear with me and thank you and It's the last episode, so we're going to just power through, right? (laughs) Uh, Before we get to the interview, here is Rebecca reading an excerpt from her memoir, Do You Feel This? The Story of a Voice Lost and Reclaimed. Okay. So this is an early chapter in um, a memoir manuscript that I have. This is um, one of the earliest chapters in the section, chapter four. I'm explained to them before I arrive. A girl in a wheelchair will be joining Mrs. Wood's second grade class. Our family has just moved from the brick streets and giant elms in the small college town of Manhattan, Kansas, where I was born in the where I was born to the polished suburbs of Kansas City. The kids in my new class are curious. There must be an explanation, a story to hang on to, a way to make sense of this new girl's wheelchair. On my first day in my new school, my mom stays with me. I remember her as casual and bright, but when I think about it now, I imagine she had to feel frightened for me. She sits by my desk all day, goes with me to lunch and recess, and before the day is over, gives a talk to the 28-year-old faces clustered at her feet. Rebecca had cancer when she was a baby, she starts carefully. 
intentional of every phrase and tone. The students stare. Cancer is not something you can catch. Her voice is slow and clear as she makes eye contact with each face, but it made Rebecca very sick. It's a miracle that she's alive, but now she has to do things a little bit differently than other kids. The students look back and forth between my mom and me. I bow my chin toward my feet, peering up every few moments. She just wants to be treated like everyone else, she concludes emphatically. Now, does anyone have any questions? The hands shoot up. How does she, I mean, when she's going to bed at night, one boy hesitates, trying to figure out what he even wants to ask. How does she sleep? He finishes, his right arm draped over his tilted head, his brow scrunched. How does she get into her bed to sleep, my mom clarifies. He nods his head vigorously. Rebecca, would you like to answer this one? I just get into bed, I say, barely above a whisper. Who is this kid, I think? What a stupid question. But the students continue to ask questions that baffle me. Does it hurt? Does what hurt, I think? How does she get her food from the refrigerator? I just get it. How do you think? Does she take baths? Do I look like I don't take baths? But my mom answers all of the questions patiently and thoroughly until there are no more raised hands to call on. For three days in a row, she comes to school with me. I don't want to be there without her, surrounded by a colony of kids who don't understand me. I don't understand them either. Their parents drop them off for school in shiny cars with working heaters. They use words like PJs to refer to jammies and put brightly colored foam grippers on their pencils. So fancy. On the fourth day, she walks me into the classroom and helps me put my backpack on the hook. She sees that I have a sharpened pencil and all of my notebooks. Then she stoops next to my desk, looks me in the eyes and says, I'll see you at three. Can you please stay? I ask, my throat tightening with panic. I can't keep the corners of my mouth from tugging down to my chin. You'll be fine, Becca, she says. I don't believe her. Who will help me navigate the crowded hallways when everyone rushes out of their classrooms at the end of the day? Who will stay with me at recess? Who will carry my tray at lunch? I realize very quickly that everyone wants to carry my tray at lunch. They also want to push me around the hallways and around the blacktop at recess. If a kid feels cheated out of the experience, like they haven't been given enough turns with me, they often pout, crossing their arms and glowering. I start making lists. If someone feels unjustly excluded, I automatically defer to the list. I haven't gotten a pusher all week, someone inevitably whines. I'll put you on the list, I say, pulling out a piece of notebook paper with lines of names, most of them already crossed off for completed turns. After Lindsay, Samantha, Brad, and Lucy, you'll be next, I promise, I say. This is a new experience for me, a new story to fit into. I'm a coveted novelty, and I like it. And I don't like it. I feel like I don't have any friends, but I can't explain why. There's a list of people who want to be with me, after all. 
When I look at it now, I can see how the list of people who wanted to push me around school was disturbingly similar to the list of people who wanted to take the class hamster home for the weekend. In this new school, I'm the class pet, the fancy toy. Only, I've always known I'm not my wheelchair. I am entirely myself. Rebecca, the girl who loves her baby dolls and knows how to read really well. For these new kids, though, these boundaries seem blurred. My disability swallows me, and I serve as a fascinating doohickey or thingamajig. They're waiting in line to spend time with me, like a booth at the circus. The line is being drawn. We're different, and I'm lonely. Thank you, Rebecca, and welcome to more to the story. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be talking with you. Um, let's start with your writing background. Talk a little bit about how you started writing and in particular, what draws you to be interested in writing creative nonfiction? Yeah. So, uh, I've been writing, I started writing little stories when I pretty much, uh, learned how to spell. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would make little books, uh, with my sister and, and color all the illustrations and bound, bound them together and had a little collection of stories. And then um, into adolescence, I have, oh, so many angsty journals, just like pages and pages filled with writing. So I, I think language and wanting to make sense of the world through words was always something I was compelled to do. Um, and by the time I, I got to uh, college, I was really interested in writing stories. And I, I wrote all kinds of really weird, strange bizarre uh, stories that I think mostly only made sense to me and maybe one other weird kid in the class. Um, so I, I played with it a lot. I was really interested. And I, of course, love reading. Um, but I, it wasn't until I was in graduate school, actually, that I discovered creative nonfiction. Um, I uh, was studying disability studies at the University of Kansas uh, and actually using that as a lens to interpret literature. Um, and I just had missed writing. Uh, and so I took this class with one of my professors and, uh, our first assignment was to write a personal essay. And suddenly, um, I realized that I was like flourishing. It was like, you know, fish return to water or something. I just had so many things that I wanted to explore. And, um, I just felt energized by the possibility, especially, um, that connection between disability studies and myself and my own my own experiences um, because I'd been studying the disabled body as sort of this theoretical object um, and construct, uh, but the the merging of that creative um, expression of writing and my own personal experiences and disability studies kind of all together culminated into something that felt uh, like magic to me. I um, so I, that's where that's that was the spark and that's kind of the. Um, fuel that has pushed me forward um, since then. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating, this idea of the lens of disability looking at literature. Are there some of, like, what are some of your favorite pieces of literature or characters that you have studied with that perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I actually uh, started with Victorian literature. That was my area, my focus. Um, so a lot of the stories uh, that I've I've spent the most time with would be from the 19th century. Um, and there, you know, we have a lot of uh, stereotypes of what those figures 
would be um, that a lot of times disability is erased from stories. Um, but if it is present, we've got Tiny Tim, um, you know, these really stereotypical, uh, pitiable figures that are there in order to create some sort of change in the heart of the non-disabled protagonist. And that there is a lot of that um, happening in Victorian literature, but there's a lot of other creativity and um really interesting characters that were developed during that time. Wilkie Collins is one of my favorite writers of all time. Um, The Moonstone and um, Poor Miss Finch is actually um, the story that I get the most excited about. Poor Miss Finch is a a character that the protagonist is a woman who is blind and actually I think is one of the, I think the only um, disabled female in Victorian literature to actually birth her own children. Mm. Um, so there's, there's all, I don't want to be, I don't want to give spoilers, but there's all kinds of plots and turns with this, <laughs> of course, the Wilkie Collins novel um, with this poor Miss Finch. Um, but even the title poor Miss Finch, you realize very quickly is, um, is he's being facetious there because there's nothing poor about her. She's this vivacious, um, totally capable blind protagonist uh in this adventure scandalous adventure story so um i i love i love victorian literature for the ways that there's there's just a lot of uh examples of of uh characters that are even more progressive than i see now in a lot of ways um so the victorians cannot be put into a box essentially definitely not definitely not (laughs) oh that's fascinating i'm so interested in kind of re-examining some of those stories um, from that perspective because, mm-hmm. well, and maybe this is something you talk about for folks who don't have a similar experience. Mm-hmm. What is your experience with them and how they encounter the same type of stories after talking with you or after hearing your perspective on them? Who 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 would be we be looking at? Uh, like other people... The the non-disabled people. Oh, like how do their perspectives change mm-hmm. once? Yes. You know, that's a good question. I'm teaching a class right now. Um, a high, I'm teaching high school for the first time ever in my life, which is just like a roller coaster of learning curve. Amazing learning curve. It's like very difficult, challenging. <laughs> but I'm teaching a disability and literature class. Uh-huh. And it is really interesting um, to see the range of responses because there are kids that are really curious and and start to see things really differently. Um, even in film, we like current um, television programming and, and films that are being created in 2017, um, their eyes are kind of opened to recognizing a lot of the tropes that are showing up again and again. Why do all the disabled characters have to be cured or dead by the end of this story? What, what does that mean? Um, but there's also uh, quite a lot of resistance that took me off guard. Um, I Obviously, I have a really biased perspective on this experience being a valuable one to consider um, and one that's often disregarded to to ill effect to the lives of actually of, of people living with disabilities in real life. Um, but there are a number of kids that ha- don't have any curiosity about that experience or don't um, see a connection between the stories that we tell and real lived experience in the real world. Uh, and so it's really prompting me to think more critically about how to teach the connection between um literature and uh and why it really matters in our Mm. culture like the 
the um, power that it has in shaping our culture. Um, It's, I guess I I just have been operating that this is a foregone conclusion for so long. Like, of course, story is, of course, the characters and the figures and what we do with them in stories matter in the real world. But um, there's some work to be done, I think, to show that and, and kind of, um, I don't know, present the the power of that. Um, So I don't know, a range. I think I think there are some people that are really curious about that as a um, a way of looking at literature, and I think there are some people who um, I don't know what I don't know exactly what the resistance is, but um, a kind of disinterest in that uh, type of character, a, mm. a lack of interest. I don't know if it's that disability isn't like a sexy subject. I don't know. Yeah, like maybe there's some work that needs to be done to make this into like a uh, I don't know. Uh, something, some, some kind of rebranding for disability. I, I would be up for working on that, but yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm sure it, ha- it, it's just like encountering any type of person, disabled or not disabled, who is different from you, yeah. and you are unsure of how to interact or engage out of fear or um, out of your own insecurity for how that person might react to the way that you're trying to engage with them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a lot of sense. It's complicated interpersonal relationships that we can't seem to figure out with gender and race and, you know, all these other types of um, labels that keep us this that, that, um, perpetuate this perspective that we are so different and othered from each other mm-hmm. when we really aren't as much as we think we are. Yeah. And I think there is, there is something really disruptive about considering disability, like really immersing yourself in this perspective. And I think that that disruption can be really uncomfortable. Um, and I think I need to remind myself of that as I go into the classroom every day, that larger context of um, potential causes for that discomfort, um, there, that it does require a lot of rethinking about the way that you look at, at the, the world and that's right. challenging, that's difficult. Right. And if it doesn't come naturally, I think that there's also just this frustration of, um, feeling ill-equipped to enter into that conversation. And that makes maybe some resistance on the front end too. So there's lots of reasons that mm-hmm. make that complicated and mm-hmm. difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the piece that you read. Um, tell me a little bit about the impetus for writing that particular story and that that part of your experience and just how it came together for you. Yes. You know, side note, I realized as soon as we finished, as soon as I finished reading the last line, it was like quite a downer of a piece to end on <laughs> loneliness because the book as a whole is, is I, I, not a downer. I don't think I don't I hope not. Um, but yeah, so that that chapter um comes pretty early in a narrative that is looking at um, my my longer story of um, losing my connection to my body really early in my life and by extension, losing my voice. Um, and so this story is kind of uh, the early chapters are looking at that loss and that disconnection and how that occurs um, with early illness, uh, and then kind of the early social experiences where I began to see myself as other and different and outside and disconnected. Um, and then as a coping mechanism, the, the voice that I take on, um, in order to, um, kind of become, uh, 
this inspirational disabled figure that is is distant and other, but above um, somehow. Uh, so that that's sort of a, a way to cope with um, with the othering of of my body and the disconnection and loss of my voice. So uh, the rest of the narrative is a process of um, struggling to get back to that voice and and struggling to get back to my body and eventually. Um, well, I, again, I don't, I don't want to give spoilers, but it is more, more hopeful than ending on, on I was lonely. <laughs> um, so uh, essentially a narrative about reclaiming my voice and reconnecting to my disabled body as it is, um, and, and embracing that um, singular um, embodiment, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You write in the story that your mom tells the class, you had cancer when you were a baby. Mm-hmm. Have you been in a wheelchair your whole life? Mm-hmm. Uh, most of it. So mm-hmm. um, there was a, a span of years uh, after I lost, I slowly deteriorated and lost my ability to walk um, during the two years of treatment that I had for cancer, um, culminating with six weeks of really intense radiation. Um, so slowly lost my ability to walk when I was about three years old, but I didn't get a chair until I started first grade. And so there's this really um, interesting period in between. And, and the piece that I actually wrote for Under the Gumtree um, was that did that included some of that span where I kind of I wrote a trike around the neighborhood. Before I had a chair, I kind of would crawl around the neighborhood and around my house. And I didn't really notice that that was a weird way to to navigate space. Um, I didn't notice that that was that people would look at me strangely. Um, so there's a, a period of time when I just got around the world, however, my body let me. And then when I started school and there was sort of this rigid expectation that we need to be at art class at exactly this time, and now we're all moving to recess, that sort of um, regimented space required this a mobility aid. So I got my hot pink wheelchair when I was in first grade. Um, yes. Awesome. <laughs> Hot pink letters that spelled Rebecca. It was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. So since then, I have uh-huh. had a chair. Uh huh. And um, I want to hear a little bit more about just your awareness of what you write about in the piece. So you seem to you you appear to have all these friends. This list of people who want to be spending time with you. And so kind of coming to terms with realizing that, oh, maybe that's not the same thing as having friends and this feeling of loneliness. Like, how did you come to that realization and then even begin to process it as such a young person? That's a really, um, I don't know, it's a huge, huge thing, I think, to deal with at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, and I, I, it's interesting when you're writing creative nonfiction about your childhood self. Right. Um. Because how much do, how much of that is my reflection now and piecing things together? I know that I was really miserable in school and I felt really lonely. Um, I know that I was aware of um, the people around me and that there were people who wanted to spend time with me. I don't know how much sense I was able to make of that at the time Um Besides, or how much I could reconcile that into into some cohesive thought. I was aware of both things, um, but I, I didn't, it wasn't something that I shared with anyone. It was, uh, there was very little sharing that I did at the, uh, in my youth. Uh, it was much more of a, um, this is something that I will just kind of have to take on 
um, on my own. Um, so now that I've written this book and my parents have read some of the drafts of it, there's a lot of bewilderment, like you were experiencing what? And, Mm. um, there's been a lot of that. Uh, but yeah, that's a really great question. I don't, it's, it's difficult to know how much, um, how clear that those, that thought process would have been at the time. Um, I, I definitely have a lot of writing from that time, um, where I'm, on the cusp of insight, but, but how much insight can you have as a little kid? Um, so it's, it's more of a combination of, um, angst and then confusion about where that angst comes from, not being able to make too much sense of it. Sure. And it does, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, I often find that for me, the writing is almost more the process of realization Mm -hmm. and like understanding like why I was feeling certain ways at a young age when I didn't have the maturity to process and understand fully what what, what I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that makes total sense to me. Um, so you talked earlier about how grad school was when you found creative nonfiction and you had been studying literature through the lens of disability. And I'm wondering if that was also because you were saying that was when you found creative nonfiction and started writing more. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear more about how that translated into, okay, I'm going to write about disability and I'm going to write about my experience in the world as a person with disability living in a wheelchair. As opposed to writing about something uh like relation like a relationship with my mom or exactly yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah. something more Um, to like more what would we we would consider like more typical for a like a young person exploring creative nonfiction. yeah um that's a good question so um when I first started writing like the very first piece I ever wrote um, for my creative nonfiction class. I don't know. I, I'm assuming this is really common, but my first essay was almost like um, the story of my life in 15 pages. Sure. You know, like, like <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's like scanning from empathy into the present moment and everything in between, but it's all like, wow, that was just one paragraph that covered 10 years of your life. <laughs> um, so I think I think that uh, I I don't know how much of it is just that I was studying disability studies. I was so immersed in that um, reading at the time that I was kind of rethinking a lot about my life and how I um, how I had gotten to the place that I had, the decisions that I had made, what um, um, just re reflecting on the whole scope of that story. Um, so I think it's kind of a combination of the fact that I was really immersed in um, in, in this academic, um, conversation. Um, so I was thinking about those things, but I think also, and this is, I would, I would never assume that this would be the case for other people with disabilities because everybody's experiences are entirely unique. But for me, I do think that, um, my story and a lot of my stories are shaped, uh, by, through my experience with my body. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of um, that that just shows up in so many different relationships. Um, like I can't write about my mom without writing about my disability. I couldn't do, I can barely do that. Um, it has really impacted um, our relationship considerably. And I think 
that there is a way that um, I I do have um, stories that would that would not have anything to do with my body um, or very little to do with it. But I wonder if I if I need to if there's some kind of process of getting through all of those stories before I get to others or something. I don't know. It, maybe it's just a reflection of the work that I'm doing in my own life. Um, the ideas that I'm working through and trying to kind of struggle through. Sure. Um, but I have thought about that before. Like, could you write an essay? Cause to date, like everything that I write has to do with my body in some form or another. And I, and I do think like, could you write a whole essay where that just didn't come in mm-hmm. at all? And I'm sure I, I'm sure that that's in me, but, um, <laughs> it's just not what I'm, it's just not how not the stories that are coming to me these days. Um, and I think a lot of that is because um, I had, it had not been a part of any of my stories up into that point. I, I just was, there's so much reflection that I have had to do. Um, and you can see that in like the stories that I wrote before finding disability studies, they were, they were stories about um, like, a little angel town living on a hill with one rebel angel that like falls in love with an ostrich salesman or, you know, like these, they, um, they, I, I think that they were stories that, um, were fueled by an angst of feeling like another, um, without the language or capacity to understand why. Um, and so maybe, um, I'm kind of getting to the crux of a lot of the, um, the feelings that I have about the world are really, fundamentally shaped through this unique experience that I have, um, in the body that I live in, in the world. Sure. sure. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a very rambly answer to your very good question. That's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We're getting, getting at something there. Yeah. Um, so you were studying disability studies and is that what you're continuing to study with your PhD? I finished in the spring of this year. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And so I, yeah, so I, I hopped on this job teaching high school at a private high school in, um, in Kansas city, um, and have been kind of, uh, running nonstop in that since I, (laughs) since August 21st or, uh, probably a little before school started actually. Um, so it, it's been a little bit surreal switching from entirely immersed in, in my own work and, um, and then stepping into this role where I'm teaching, um, every, every day, mm-hmm. um, starting at 8am. So, um, I, I, I'm still, uh, able to bring in some of that disability studies stuff in the class that I'm teaching, but for right now, um, yeah, I'm in a little bit of a different space. <laughs> Sounds like it. Wow. Yeah. Teaching high school. That's that's I think those people are brave souls, man. <laughs> uh, I think I do, too. I didn't realize how brave, but I'm learning. It's, yes. Brave work. Thanks, thanks for that. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what else are you working on in terms of your writing? You you said that the excerpt is a part of your memoir. Is the memoir draft complete? Is there a title? What what are you doing with it? Yes, it is complete. Um, the title is Do You Feel This? The Story of a Voice Lost and Reclaimed. Um, <clears throat> and I'm I'm looking for a place for it. Um, so the draft is, is complete. 
um, that was part of my dissertation work, which was a nice motivation to um, to keep the writing going. Um, and so, yes, now um, I'd like to find a home for that project. Um, and since school has started, my 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 capacity to sit down and, and write lengthy pieces has diminished, um, which in a way that is a little frightening. Um, but I one of the, the mediums that I've really enjoyed being able to engage with is Instagram and and writing these tiny um, tiny pieces that are maybe exploring smaller thoughts that feels more manageable right now. Um, so I've been doing that um, and then. Yeah, I'm hoping to I'm hoping to do some pieces that, you know, after finishing that mem memoir manuscript, which is just so much writing about yourself, so much writing, looking and examining my own life, I'd really like to look out for a little bit and think about um, disability from other perspectives, not just my own. Um, so I'd like I, I have thoughts and thinking about projects that I could do where I would be um, interviewing other people or finding other stories to dig into. Um, so yes, a hazy vision for future future writing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I love your Instagram feed, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's fun. It's a, it's a fun medium. It is. I think so, too. It's it's it is. You're right. A, a great um, outlet to do just like it's like almost flash flash. Yes. Nonfiction. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's a great description. Uh -huh. I think of it as like mini mini miniature memoir or something mm -hmm. like flash memoir, something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Flash flash yeah. memoir. Yeah. Well, that all sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read the entire memoir when it gets published. Oh, thank you. So stay in touch and keep me posted on that. Yes. yes. Um, and thank you so much for your time today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work online? Yes. So I do have a website, uh, just RebeccaTossig.com. Um, and then the Instagram feed that we were just talking about is um, at sitting underscore pretty. Uh, and that's where I try to keep up with these flash, flash memoir pieces. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So either one of those spaces would be probably a good place to find out, find out what I'm up to. So. OK, great. I will be sure to include those links in the show notes for this episode. So thank you so much, Rebecca. It's been great thank to talk too. to you. Same, same. Wonderful to talk to you. That was Rebecca Tossig. Visit her online at RebeccaTossig.com and follow her on Instagram at sitting underscore pretty. Of course, you can always visit us online at moretothestorypodcast.com where you can find all of those links and the correct spelling to Rebecca's last name so you'll be sure to find her. And because this is the last episode of season two, I will also say you can find all of the previous episodes by visiting moretothestorypodcast.com. Or, of course, subscribing on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And that means that you will get all sorts of goodness of 15 episodes worth of interviews with writers talking about creative nonfiction, writing, reading, sharing their true personal story, which is what this podcast is all about, which is what Under the Gumtree is all about. And if you are listening to these episodes thinking, man, I'm really into this. I want to try my hand at writing my own story. Awesome. Please do it. And I have a resource to help you out. I will give you my final plug of the season for my online audio course, CNF 101. It's a email course, which means 
you sign up and once a week for six weeks, you'll get an email sent to you directly to your inbox. And each email includes the audio lesson, which you can download and listen to at your own pace whenever you want, as often as you want. The email also includes reading material, a summary of the lesson, as well as homework for the week. In six weeks, you will understand how the literary world works and talks about the genre of creative nonfiction. You will read examples of the genre in different forms. You will practice writing in each of the subgenres of creative nonfiction. You will, of course, have access to all of the course materials for future reference because they will be in your email inbox. And you will have continued access to a Facebook group with other course participants. And I also pop in there from time to time to join in the conversation and ask any questions as often as I can. I try to do it about once a week. And of course, it's just a great way to become familiar with many resources available for continuing to explore creative nonfiction. Check it out online at janamarlise.com slash CNF 101 course. I hope you'll join me. I would love nothing more than to support you in your writing journey of telling your true story. Thank you so much for joining me in the season two of More to the Story. I'll be back again soon with another season of episodes. And until then, keep writing keep telling your story, keep telling your true personal story without shame. I'll talk to you soon. To subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes.com slash more to the story. And while you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you and it helps with the ratings. More to the story is produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California with technical and audio support from TJ Santoro. Special thanks to my husband, Jeremy Marin, who wrote and performed the theme song. You can visit us online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Follow Under the Gumtree on Twitter and Instagram at undergumtree. I'm Jana Marlise Marin, just Jana on Twitter, Jana Marlise everywhere else. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story. Tell me a story. Tell me truth. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you. Sitting on the balcony, drinking up our wine. Talking about the way that we used to live our lives. The words in the books, man, they're nothing but lies. I look into your eyes and you look into mine. You say, tell me a story, tell me true. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell my dream.